It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. Today we are officially, finally, in the second half of the season. I don't know how that works. We're in the second half of the season, but there are 25 games left in the season. Uh, so I guess we're not really in the second half. You, you know what I mean. The All-Star break is over. The season uh, finale, the finish line, is now in front of us. About 25 games left for most teams. That final quarter pull stretch of the year, which can get funky. Some teams will you know, rest players or try to try to get rookies and young guys more minutes and uh, it can get hazy, but one thing that's not hazy is that the Milwaukee Bucks are really good. And the Bucks, uh, they won last night, first game off the All Star break, pushing them to forty seven and eight, which means they need to go twenty three and four in the final twenty seven games to become the third NBA team ever to win seventy in a season, and that is realistic, of course, because if you do some quick back of the map, back of the napkin math, which I know most of you have probably already done. They just need to play at the exact same pace they're playing at to hit 70 wins. Whether it will happen or not, whether they can grind out, you know, you you rest players sometimes in the last game or two and a couple losses could throw this whole endeavor off track. But, you know, if they get into the 60s and they have a, a game or two to spare, you may see Milwaukee go for 70 wins. It, it's possible. It's possible. Um, today we're going to bring in Danny LaRue co-host of Dunked On, hosts Real GM Radio, writes for The Athletic, does all kinds of things. Hard to keep up with everything that Danny does. And we're going to talk to Danny today about something a little bit different. We will talk about happenings going on in the season if we get to it. But I wanted to bring him in to sort of get his perspective on what it's been like covering and following and analyzing basketball without having grown up with it. He has a very unique voice which I don't know how often it's it's sort of um, explicitly stated in his content, but he did not grow up with any of the baggage or the rules or the predisposition. He, he didn't watch basketball and, and wasn't really into it, um, say, in the 90s or 2000s growing up. Um, so that's created a very sort of interesting lens for him to not only see the game through, but to see our, and I talk about this in Thinking Basketball, the book a lot, to sort of see our biases and our ideas that we've carried forward from you know, playing on the playground or playing at the gym or the Y or whatever when we were kids uh, to you know, growing up and watching different dominating marketed stars on TV. So we'll talk to Danny a little bit about that. But first, a couple items on the docket. The first one that I wanted to get to was uh, just recapping that what turned out to be a very exciting all-Star weekend. I enjoyed the fourth quarter of the All-Star game. I haven't watched All-Star games in years. You had to realize back in the day, they actually used to play. They would like play the All-Star game. They wouldn't play 100%, but they would play. They would play 90, 95%. They wouldn't do anything dirty or too intense, but they actually got up for the All-Star game 
back in the day. And so it's something, it's an event that I've really soured on but enjoyed that fourth quarter. But that's not what I wanted to get to. What I wanted to get to was we had another classic dunk contest with Aaron Gordon and Derek Jones Jr. from Miami, two Florida guys. And in this dunk contest, I mean, there were 50s back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Gordon started the contest with five 50s. I think Derek Jones had something like four or five 50s himself. And, of course, the ending was seen as uh, this very controversial decision where Jones took the crown and Gordon, for the second time in the last five years, came out on the short end of the stick. So I don't know how interested people are in the dunk contest. It was a huge event for me and my friends and teammates and everything growing up. It was very fun, but it misses a lot, of course. It has years where you just don't have incredible dunkers or you don't have a lot of flair or excitement. I thought this was one of the better dunk contests in history, very similar to 2016, going back and forth with with really high-quality dunks. But no need to spend a a podcast diving in and analyzing the minutia of the dunk contest, but there was one thing I wanted to get to that really, really struck me about this contest and the fan reaction in general, and that is the idea of putting the ball on top of a player and then jumping over that player and grabbing the ball and dunking it that way. That is not only become very popular in sort of hardcore dunk circles um, outside of the NBA, but it's something that Aaron Gordon does on a huge number of his dunks, including the dunk over Taco Fall. Notice that he didn't dribble up or lob it or whatever the way Nate Robinson did years ago when he dunked over Dwight Howard. Instead, he has Taco put the ball uh, on the bottom of his neck head area and hold it there. And if you pay close attention to that telecast, Dwayne Wade says, you know, I did this. I had to stand in for one of these dunks in the past and my neck hurt for a week. There's a reason his neck hurt for a week. The dunker is applying downward pressure, downward force on the ball as a way to boost himself when he's going up. That's right. It's scandalous. Not really. It's a dunk contest. It's pretty fun. But no one seems to notice this. When Nate Robinson dunked over Dwight Howard, one of the first things they said was, you know, look at his left hand. His left hand goes on Howard's shoulder, and he pushes off as a way to get a little bit more of a boost. It's the old Tom Chambers move. And that's a real thing, of course. Anybody who's ever jumped and tried to reach something, and like if you jump and then give yourself a boost with your arms, you are going to go higher and stay in the air longer. And that's what's happening with these dunks. Not every single time. Derek Jones had an incredible dunk to me where he has the guy hold the ball over his head, but he doesn't like to use the push-down move as much. And he actually scoops it from the underside. Instead of pushing down, he scoops it. So that's a pretty clean grab and dunk, regardless of how you have the guy hold the basketball for you. In other words, he could just hold it in his arm outstretched and you could grab it that way. But very rarely in the history of the dunk contest has anybody been using these boosts until recently. And so if you go back to Aaron Gordon's dunk in 2016, 
where he does the pike dunk, he, he slips the ball under his legs, under his butt, over the mascot. It helped to have a mascot there because the mascot serves as a foundation. The, the suit serves as a foundation to push off of and launch off of. He actually holds the ball. He puts the ball right on top of the mascot suit if you go back and rewatch it. And you can see that he pushes down extremely hard to kind of hold himself. You know, he's using it like a table, like something to just suspend himself and push off of, almost like a gymnast. Now, that's an amazing dunk. It's a very creative dunk. And again, let me check my time. We're already a few minutes into the podcast. I'm not going to spend too much of the podcast analyzing the dunks. It's just a dunk contest. But it does strike, it, it does kind of plug into, I think, some of the ideas we're going to talk about today where what you notice, what your brain is designed to notice. And, and I haven't seen anybody talk about this issue as it pertains to, you know, difficulty of dunks, what's within the rules, um, you know, how much, how much easier and harder does that make it? And so I, I did a little investigating. As I am known to do, I did a little investigating. And I grabbed some of these dunks and I put a stopwatch on them. And there's kind of two things you can do with the stopwatch that aren't perfectly scientific, but I think they sum up this idea that I'm trying to convey. And the two things are, how long was the guy in the air before he dunked the basketball. Dunk, the dunk is pretty quick, you know, when it goes through the, the ring part of the cylinder, the hoop, not the net. How long was he in the air for before he dunked it? And secondly, what was his overall hang time? If someone hangs on the rim, uh, as Gordon did at the end of that taco fall dunk, you, you kind of throw that measurement out. You can't use it. But a lot of dunks in history, they don't hang on the rim. Most dunk contest dunks, in fact, don't really spend any time hanging on the rim. Doesn't always add to the aesthetic. So, okay, what happens if we put a stopwatch on these dunkers? I know this is what you're here for. This is the this is the in-depth basketball analysis you're here for. Dunk contest hang times. <laughs> um, but what happens really? How much of a how much of a factor is this sort of boosting yourself up with your arms? Well, if you're kind of a normal person, you know, if we go back in time and look at the great dunks and put the stopwatch on them, if you're a normal person, it might take, you know, half a second or 55 hundredths of a second or something like that. So that's 0.55 seconds. I'll just talk about them in hundredths of a second for simplicity. So if we go back, Michael Jordan's great um, dunk in 1988 where... He, his head almost hits the hoop and he has to duck under the hoop and he holds it a little bit longer. And then he almost gets the honey dip on the other side. That was 54 hundredths of a second from the time he jumped to the dunk. If we look at like a, a Spud Webb, who's just so small and has to jump so high, 44 hundredths of a second in 1988 on his first dunk. Isaiah Riders through the legs dunk, 49 hundredths of a second. And then you start to get to these incredible dunkers of the modern dunking era. Like, for instance, uh, Desmond Mason, when he goes through the legs in 2003, that's 60 hundredths of a second, six tenths of a second. Vince Carter's 360 on his opening dunk, 57 
hundreds of a second. So everything is on this scale. Half a second, six-tenths of a second. Gerald Green, when he blows out the cupcake in 2008, crazy hops on that one if you see where he has the basketball. That, again, is six-tenths of a second. All these incredible dunks are around six-tenths of a second. Derek Jones, by the way, absurd vertical, incredible hang time. And some of the difficulty of his dunks necessitated that he dunked lower, a, a sort of a later stage dunk as he's falling down, as he's, as he's descending back toward the earth. And he's over six-tenths of a second, 63 hundredths of a second, 61 hundredths of a second. You want to know what Aaron Gordon was on that pike dunk where he put it under his legs in 2016? He was over three quarters of a second, 76 hundredths of a second. If you look at hang time as a measurement of these dunks, again, up, assuming the guy doesn't hang on the rim, comes down, and you go through all these great dunks that I just talked about. Really, really phenomenal hang time is like over 85 hundredths of a second, 88 hundredths of a second, 9 tenths of a second. Vince Carter on his 360 in 2000 was 88 hundredths of a second. I think the highest one I've ever seen was Vince Carter through the legs in 2000. That was 95 hundredths of a second, but his finger does kind of catch the rim a little bit, which would have suspended him. Not to spend too much, not to spend too much more time on this, but you want to guess where Aaron Gordon's pike dunk in 2016 was? It's the only dunk in dunk contest history that doesn't involve hanging on the rim that I've ever seen that is over a second. 1.05 seconds of hang time. So he's getting like a 20 to 25% boost in all of these categories by suspending himself, by pushing down on the ball. And he does the exact same thing with some of his Chance the Rapper dunks. That's why you see Chance the Rapper's head go down and his hat get pushed down and all that because he's pushing off for a boost. Anyway, Aaron Gordon's a great dunker. Love watching him dunk. Just thought just thought you might find that interesting that when we watch these dunk contests, sometimes we forget about these things. So when Nate Robinson was doing it and it was exposed, you could watch the ball in one hand or with the lob. Your eyes are focused on the ball, but you could also notice that naked left hand pushing down. But when you when you put the ball on a player and use the ball itself as part of the push-off mechanism, all of a sudden, you don't notice it anymore. And this ties into some things we'll we'll talk about with Danny LaRue. By the way, for Patreon subscribers, that's patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, I I will put up uh, some more of these dunk hang time stats if you're interested. But enough about dunking. One of the things that I love to do that many of you may have noticed is is look at players and how they not just how they play but what their statistical footprint looks like when they play in different lineups so the classic way to do this before we had play-by-play or any fancier measuring tools on these guys was to wait till they changed teams or had big teammate shifts but now in the last 20 something years we can do this by looking at play-by-play and saying hey you play 2,000 minutes with this guy or two or this lineup, and you played 1,000 minutes without him. 
what happens? What what can we say about you know Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant when they don't play together to get a feel for how each might play without the other for a full season? When Durant left for Golden State, Westbrook already had a year where Durant had the injury to the foot, which was what 2015. And when Durant wasn't on the court, Westbrook played very similarly in style to how he played in 2017. So we have the tools to do this. And one that I stumbled upon that was very interesting was, well, I'll give you the statistics. Player A, this comes from a a tweet I sent out yesterday, comparing player A and player B. Player A... Per 75 possessions, averages 20 points, creates about five shots for his teammates based on my box creation estimate, shoots uh, 44% from three. He actually shoots a little bit higher, but I didn't want to confuse people or bias people. You run out of characters on Twitter. I think as of putting these stats together, he shoots 47%, but it's it's not an enormous sample. It's not like he's taken... 800 threes, and I didn't want that to cloud the the answer. So player A, 20 points per 75, five shots created per teammates per one, uh, per 75 possessions. He's got a passer rating a little bit over seven and a half. Gets to the line about three times every 75 possessions. And when he's on the court, his team is plus 15. Plus 15 per 100. Amazing. So you're looking at a guy who can shoot. I can tell you as a mid-range game, gets to the line occasionally, has some shot creation, his passer rating is high. Given that profile with the passer rating, you would want to give him credit for extra passes, dynamic passes, finishing stuff that's been set up by someone else. That's typically the hallmark of what we're looking at there. That's player A. Player B, man, these are some huge numbers. These are numbers big enough that they confused some people on NBA Twitter. Is like, Who is that? Player B, 30 points per 75. Passer rating a little bit over 6.5. Nine shots created every 75 possessions. So now you have a guy who is doing more on-ball creation, scoring way more, his entire offensive load. All of a sudden, you know, this is a guy who, compared to the first player, is carrying an enormous load. The fact that the passer rating is a little lower tells you maybe as an on-ball passer, He's good, but not great. 40% from downtown. So you still think, you know, some the similar ability to stretch the defense. This is a really good shooter. Five free throw attempts. So the free throw attempts go up, but the that means based on the load and the usage, you're going to have a similar free throw rate. And instead of his teams being plus 15 when he's on the court, his team is plus 10. So, so those are the two guys. You know, like a 20, 20 points per game. He's got an outside shot, doesn't get to the line. Good extra passer, medium creation. Or 30 points, uh, I shouldn't say per game, 30 points per 75. Nearly doubles the creation, way more on-ball stuff. The passing isn't quite as good because he's doing more on-ball passing and maybe he's not as good as that. at that. 40% three-point shooting, gets to the line more, and his team is plus 10. So the question is, by the way, they play the same position. They play the same amount of minutes per game. They are essentially equal on defense. 
And I will tell you in a second why I'm confident making that statement. So the question I posed, which is not a trick question. I think too many people who follow me are wily enough to, to anticipate this being a trick question, but it's not a trick question in the sense that you're thinking it's a trick question. It's a thought experiment and an exercise that I think is fascinating and important, but you'll see why in a second. So I said, how would you describe, if you looked at these stat profiles, would you say A is likely as good as B, A is the 20 point player, A is likely to be as good as B, B is likely better, or B is definitely better? And the results, 33% said A is likely better, and 14% said B is definitely better. The remaining 53% of people said B is likely better, and I think that's the right answer. I think more times than not, B is likely going to be better. But this exercise comes in a couple layers, and it's the reason why I wanted to bring it up. Player A, well, before I tell you who they are, player A and player B, the biggest difference here, and I alluded to it in the way I interpreted the stats, The biggest difference here has to be player A is playing more like a secondary star. Off-ball finishing, dynamic passing, has the ball less and creates less. By the way, they they have almost identical scoring efficiencies. 62% 62 true shooting, 63% true shooting, something like that. So which one of these players is likely to be better. You have player A playing that secondary role. Player B looks like they're playing a primary role, creating more shots, scoring more, more free throws, more through them. And when player A is playing that secondary role, you assume he's playing it next to an equal or better player because the team is better. The team is plus 15. So you're slotting into a higher end lineup. In theory, player B is still very good on his own, plus 10, so you have a good lineup. Good team. Okay. Who's player A? Player A is Chris Middleton. Player A is Chris Middleton. By the way, someone sniffed that out. Uh, Adam Polio, I think off the top of my head, sniffed that out. Player A is Chris Middleton. Player B is Chris Middleton. Now, you heard that right. So player A is Chris Middleton when he plays with Giannis, and player B is Chris Middleton when he doesn't play with Giannis. Now, I tease this by saying I look at these splits all the time. I think they're very important, and I talk about them extensively when I look at historical profiles when you can get during a guy's prime, you can get multiple years, and try to contextualize his stats more by saying, like, we know most players' stats change when they play with different teammates. So... What does that do to the way we interpret these stats? It's not a simple question. I think it's a really important question because different box score stats are very informative for offense. And that's why I can say these guys are a wash on defense because I've never seen anything that suggests Middleton plays materially different defense with or without Giannis. Maybe over the course of a season, if he had to carry a heavier load, his defense uh, would take a bit of a hit because of effort. But for the purpose of the thought experiment, no need to get overly concerned with defense. So some players have 
a large discrepancy between their stats and their performance when a key teammate is on or off the court. Some players, when they're the first option or the second option or the third option, have you know, everybody's typically going to have subtle differences. But some players have large differences. And I don't remember a guy, I, I know there's a couple, so I'm not saying this is like the rarest thing ever. But when I saw Middleton splits this year, I thought, wow, that's one of the largest changes I can remember seeing recently. And in this case, again, he's going from kind of a a secondary option. Even in the way Milwaukee structures its offense, it's transition, it's five out, it's Giannis, quick hitting, space to the three-point line. And so he's not getting him touches on the basketball anywhere, even in that uh, mid-post foul line area that he's so dangerous in with his back to the basket. That's not a primary concern. But that changes, apparently by a, a significantly large degree, when Giannis is off the court. And so the huge takeaway for me is, and I've talked about this many times, of course, players scale or or their game and their numbers. It's not always a straight line projecting how you're going to do when you increase your usage or your load and your workload by 10%, 20%, 30%. So kudos to Middleton. But the hu- the, the major takeaway for me is just thinking about what it could mean that we place so much value on a guy when they're in a primary position, like 30 points per 75, like nine shots created instead of five shots created or whatever, and we place such value on those kind of floor-raising numbers, and I hesitate to even say floor-raising here because this is a, the whole point is this is still a good team. This is less about floor-raising and more about being a primary option where everything goes through you. We place such importance on those numbers versus this is the exact same player this is the this is the exact same player playing with the exact same teammates you're just taking the key cog off the court for the bucks and saying hey chris you do a little more heavy lifting now we'll run we'll run more stuff through you we've taken our mega tornado off the court in Giannis, so we'll run more stuff through you chris middleton by the way in case you can't tell from these splits is having a phenomenal year. And if you were, I was a, I was a Middleton All-Star guy last year. As listeners know who listened to the Sub All-Star podcasts, he is close. We'll see where, where I end up on him at the end of the year, but this year he's closer to like an All-NBA type guy. And I wouldn't be surprised, especially with Milwaukee's win total ramping up, if he gets All-NBA consideration. And I think for everything that I've written and said about the Bucks about how they're fantastic, but maybe their numbers are overly uh, sort of portraying how strong they are. I do think to have a weapon like Chris Middleton, if he plays like this, these numbers in the postseason, on the court, I mean, they're great. The, the whole point here is these are great secondary numbers next to Giannis, and these are great primary numbers. And if he plays like this and cooks second units and shoots over you know 40% from downtown, um, man, Milwaukee is going to be incredibly difficult to beat. And it's one of those things where right now on the outside, you say like, it's Giannis and a cast of characters, but Scottie Pippen wasn't Scottie Pippen until they won the title in 1991. That's how it works. Tony Parker and Manu, they were 
They were just Euro guys until they weren't. And so maybe that's on the horizon for Chris Middleton. All right, let's bring in uh, Danny LaRue. Thanks for having me. I, I, I was really amused by the reveal there because I actually expected that player A was Chris Middleton, but I didn't see that wrinkle coming into play here. Yeah, a few other people sniffed out that player A was Chris Middleton, but you know, as I just as I just detailed, I, I just think that was like a fat. You, you see discrepancies in on uh, you know when a guy's with his star team and in without. You see stuff like that, but this was one of the larger ones I can remember, and I think speaks to you know many possible things that we could get into today about how we perceive. Okay, this guy's a twenty point per game scorer and he's a good second banana, but. This guy's a 30-point-per-game scorer, and he's a primary banana, so he's got to be, you know, oodles better or something like that. Right, and and there's always so much context that is a part of analysis and, and whether a, a player is in, the right, is in the right situation or the wrong situation or making the most of wherever he is. And part of what makes basketball so fun is that those things are changing all the time, and you're getting new input, and, you're, and, and so sometimes a player is... The, is the big fish in a big pond, and then they get into an even bigger pond, thinking about like LeBron going from the Cavs to the Heat in, in 2010. Or you have a bunch of different other test cases, but at the same point, every basketball player is different. They have different strengths and weaknesses, and so part of what our job as analysts, and in many ways, more importantly, uh, a front office person, ideally a general manager, has to see that too, is that you're not usually comparing apples to apples. You're comparing apples to like squash. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let, let's back up a little bit. I, I mentioned it earlier before we brought you in. Give folks some idea of sort of your background because you didn't tip. You didn't have the typical, you know, grow up on the sauce and just follow basketball religiously, you know, in, in middle school and high school or whatever. Talk about how you got into the sport, um, sort of other sports that may have influenced how you see basketball. And then, you know, we can go from there in terms of how that has influenced your perspective of what's valuable for a team, what's valuable for a player, and things like these stats where, you know, a core concept around the sport has always just been like, are you a 20-point-per-game score or are you a 30-point-per-game score? In the case of Chris Middleton, he's both. Yeah, my path is is very unusual. I have been a big sports fan for my entire life, I learned to read on the sports page of the San Francisco Chronicle, so that's that's a good that's a good proxy there. But I was more of a football, baseball, hockey guy. My dad's from Montreal and is is been a big hockey fan. And actually, resents basketball to an extent because it's I mean not not now that it employs his son, but you know other than that because it takes away some of the shine from hockey, which is a a, fa- a wonderful sport, a sport that I still love but could never write about very well. But and basketball for me partially due to the Warriors being pretty awful. I grew up in the Bay Area, and so I just couldn't connect with them as much. You know, the run TMC team really only lasted about a year and a half. And then the We Believe team, I was in college in L.A. at the time. So for me, I it also wasn't a sport that I played. I was I was short growing up. I was um, – so I, basketball was never really that much of an option. I played, you know, like pickup and 21 and knockout and all that type of stuff, but it was never – I never played intramural even. But then I played I played soccer. I was pretty good, you know, was to the last cut on a traveling team, that type of stuff. Played in high school. And um, so I think part of what made – so there are two things that I think are really interesting for my connection with basketball. One is, as you said, picking it up really late. I fell in love with basketball my freshman year of college, 
when I was there, UCLA didn't make the tournament that year. We did subsequent years, including three Final Fours in a row. And UCLA student section at the time, if you got there early enough, you could sit half court, three rows off the floor. And that is the easiest way to fall in love with basketball, honestly. And and so that changed the way I didn't have the same experience. You know, I didn't grow up watching the for people of our of our breath our age group. I didn't grow up watching '90s basketball or even the early aughts. I you know the, I started I, I really started watching the NBA intently. I would say in the 2004 2005 season, maybe even 05 06. And I, you know, and then I was covering the league with a credential a few years later, which was pretty wild. And then the other part, just to kind of tie a couple of threads together that we'll go through is coming at it from a soccer perspective, I think was very useful for me because in soccer, I was a center midfielder. It's funny. I was going to ask you about soccer specifically. Yeah, I was a center mid and so much of what a good soccer player does now with, with some of the advanced, like player tracking and stuff they're getting better but so much of what a good soccer player does couldn't be wasn't measured in box score stats so it was like for me I was when you're the center major in some ways they made me the quarterback of the offense and the defense and so you know that when other people screw up that might not be reflected in who you know whether the goal was allowed or the goal was scored or if somebody makes a great play maybe it was an individual or maybe they just touched a great pass or maybe it was three passes before that somebody let it out in front and so they don't get credit for an assist or anything else and so for me that idea of a basketball player doing things that weren't reflected in the box score was something that i understood in a more direct way than I think people who grew up with basketball often do because that was my life it's it's inherent to that sport I mean for me hockey as well yes um, I I could never skate but my dad was a, a solid hockey player and just watching hockey and realizing okay what do we have we have we have goals we have assists uh this is for everybody who's not a goaltender we have goals we have assists and hockey had plus minus forever and so with so few pieces of data, your brain starts to kind of go through these motions of like, well, what does it mean to be an effective defenseman? And okay, if we can get shots on goal, maybe that's another data point. If we can get block shots for defensemen, and you just start to sort of think about how a player impacts the game beyond just the box score. But then soccer, it goes to the next level. Because with soccer, you've got 11 guys, you know, 10 outside of the goalie on the pitch. And to your point, you have that center midfield position which typically in so many configurations on the field has been this like two-way machine that maybe what if you're on a great offense and you have good strikers you collect assists or something it's just not something that is typically measured or lauded with a lot of fancy stats like you know the leading goal scorer in a tournament right and there's a parallel between soccer and basketball in that one of the best things defensively that you can do is deterrence. And deterrence is notoriously hard to measure in any sport. But I would say in some ways in soccer more, if you can change the structure of where an opponent is shooting from, or or in the reverse, if they're getting shots and the ball where they want it, that's a big problem. And so it and so like that part when I remember when uh when Seth Partnow had the deterrent part of the nylon calculus big man effects, I just went Yes, like that's exactly that because because so much of what an offense and a defense is doing is trying to get the ball in the right places and Mm. trying to get shots in the right places. And I think that it is an important 
nexus to understand in and and I think they're you know we're getting better especially with the cameras and everything else at at starting to quantify what was previously unquantifiable but understanding that and this is a conversation you and I had offline previous earlier this week is understanding that there are certain things whether we're talking running and jumping or we're talking made shots or whatever there are certain things that are easier to quantify and certain things that are not and not relying too much on what it's easier to fall one side and a lot of people do but there can also be a problem going the other way as well right right and i've I've talked about that extensively i did an entire podcast on the concept of the tyranny of the quantifiable um and by the way before it slips out of my head if you haven't taken if you want to convert someone you know and you haven't taken them to sit three rows behind the bench or courtside Ugh. at a basketball game, that I think more than any other sporting experience that I can think of. Um, I've had the privilege of you know seeing like Olympic level gymnasts right down at that level. Um, I've seen you know sidelines of football games with high level football players. More than anything, I think if I have yet to not bring someone to sit courtside. And they are just mesmerized for two hours and 15 minutes. And they go, was that it? When can we go again? Uh, so, Well, I, 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 can, I can go further. So I've been to hundreds of games now, and, and all in my adult life, because I had been to a total of one NBA game before I was in college. And that was a Warriors-Kings, I think, preseason game? No, two. Warriors-Kings preseason game. And then the game, I, I have to go back, I actually referenced it in my book. Um, when Manute Bull hit a bunch of threes the second time he was on the Warriors when he came back, <laughs> I was actually that that was the only NBA regular season game I'd attended before um, before I started you know get really getting into the league. I've only sat for an NBA game. I've only sat courtside or equivalent like really courtside once. I've been on the corner a few times. I don't consider that the same thing, and it blew me away. Yeah. Like I've been to hundreds of games and just it was it was incredible and and so I, I yeah i cannot emphasize it enough i've told my you know all my friends all the you know there are a couple different levels like you know i think being being in being in the lower level is a good good way to start that's how i took like my sister to her first game and but then when you really want to step it up and and convey to people especially if they've been into sports maybe a different sport or in a basketball, a different level for NBA specifically, how it is so fundamentally different because when you're that close, you just realize, Oh my God, that's how big and fast these guys are. Right. They're, they're enormous. And yet the speed, the explosiveness, the athleticism is off the charts. uh, My favorite, my favorite line from somebody who had that experience and texted me because I'd emphasize them and they did it is they're like, I'm shocked at how little these guys get hurt. Yeah. And because the, 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 Force equals mass times acceleration for some of these guys. I mean, it's not football levels because in football, that's kind of the point, at least to an extent. There has to, you know, most plays end in some sort of tackle. But in basketball, there's just so much contact within the game and and jumping and jumping into bodies and all that type of stuff. It is kind of amazing. Well, it's more physical than people realize. Also, right. for, the, uh, for the physics counters out there, that is one for Danny, zero for me. That's a force equals mass times acceleration coming from Danny. Danny, we have a running joke on the podcast now. This is like the fourth or fifth episode this year where a physics equation has come up. Um, so you've, uh, you've broken the seal on Yay. this one today. Um, all right, where, where were we? we? We were thinking about... We were talking about the unquantifiable, I think, and getting into, getting into that idea. Like, I mean... So, so, here, I, so here's what I want to know. This is, sure. this is what I want to know. It, thinking about, you know, coming from a sport like soccer, 
where you're almost required to think about context and try to contextualize what's quantifiable and unquantifiable. And even if you don't have a measurement for it, you can kind of start to intuit across the sport, across coaches, players, fans, the culture of the sport. Hey, something like deterrence or positioning or where the ball gets to is really important. Then you hop over and you start watching basketball at this point in your life. Um, that's what I want to hear more about, sort of that what that lens was like for you to see the game that way and then the conversations that were going on because 2005 2006 was barely the dawn of sort of you know the the data rich i mean 82 games i think was just petering around with certain things but we didn't have the information that we have today so so maybe if you could dive in there that would be fascinating you're right that there wasn't a lot of a lot, a lot of resources. Then I was a worker on like the APBR metrics boards way earlier than people would think, just because I was like, well, what are one of my big questions with almost anything I'm learning about is what are smart people saying about it and trying to find that. And somebody had referenced that as being a place that intelligent people were talking. I don't think I ever posted a single comment, but I was there just trying to get a sense of what was going on at the time, real GMs forums and everything else. And yeah, it, it was really that idea. I think back to like in the context realm. I was at UCLA. Ben Howland's first year coaching the team was my was my first year of college. And in those prime years when they made the Final Fours, coaches kept on talking about how they would have bad games against UCLA. And they're like, oh, our guys just couldn't hit shots. And when you start to hear opposing coaches say that every single game, you start to think, well, maybe there's a reason. And this can get into some of the ideas of the the shots that you control and the things that you don't. And that was, was something that was instructive for me. And... Also, I think that you can go to specific players who you could tell, I mean, for college, for me, one of those was was Brandon Roy, who was at UW and just consistently killed us at UCLA whenever he was there. And you could go with, with various examples, though, of players who made life easier on their teammates or worse on their opponents. So one that I think about, you know, to, a, to an extent, it haunts me because I was there. I was at uh, Greg Oden when he was in the Final Four that then I didn't go to the championship game, but I went to the game before that where they were just like, he, he was just a one man wrecking crew. Right. And who did they play in that semifinal? Do you remember Georgetown? I believe. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. They played Georgetown. And I, I was just shocked at how, how much he made their defense work. You know, like how, how destructive he could be. I remember I didn't get to see him in person, but Anthony Davis in Kentucky was some of those similar things. And, and how, how uh, and I've those who can go back, you can read my real GM archive is pretty much available going back to 2010 when I started writing for them. Wow, you're sharing and, sharing the receipts, Danny. Oh, I have. I mean, you can read you can read my vegan fish taco stuff going back to like 07 or 08. <laughs> and I mean, and so I always, I was always big on the value of of centers and, and big men who I thought could the the duel that that first fixated me was guys who could protect the rim and defensive rebound. I have since gotten a greater appreciation for guys who can box out. Like, you know, again, quantifying the unquantifiable, you know, the Lopez twins are a great example there where it's like, well, their teams are getting the rebounds, even if they're not the one doing it and they're a part of it. That was something that I had to, I had to get more familiar with the game to truly understand and read people who got it and everything like that. Um, but really it, it was, you know, watching different teams and trying to figure out this, those, there are a lot of Spurs squads around that time well, why did they succeed? Why didn't they succeed? And I think the other fundamental part 
whether it's coming from soccer or just getting into a sport when you're more analytically minded, you know, like I like to think that when I was eight and nine, I was that too relative to my peers. But obviously when you're in your twenties, basically, then it be, you're, you're thinking about everything differently. And so I think that came in with basketball is that I didn't come in with, as you said, like bias is a good word for it. I like to think of it as the weight of growing up with something and thinking those players and that mentality was good. And so uh, I think a lot about an, uh, a conversation I had with Festus Azili back, I think it was a sophomore or sorry, not a sophomore, a second year player on the Warriors. And he taught, he picked up basketball late as well. And he said that his coaches told him he didn't have the bad habits. And so he was more able to pick up parts of the, the way basketball was evolving than the guys who had been, you know, had been taught since they were seven years old to have their, they were the big guys. So they had to have their back to the basket and, and bully. And as the league evolved, centers in particular had a real challenge there to overcome. There's this idea in some of the behavioral literature, the neuroscience literature, that when you learn something, I've heard, I've even heard the term engrams uh, applied to this. When you learn something, you have a certain number of repetitions that kind of, for lack of a better way to put it, wires your nervous system up to do that, whether it's swing a golf club or shoot a basketball. And it takes a certain number of repetitions to learn. What the literature says, and I won't try to put an exact number on it, but if you look at this kind of research on movement patterns and expertise in movement patterns, what it shows is relearning something takes way, way, way longer. And so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of truth in this idea. I think about it with Tim Duncan. I think about it now with Pascal Siakam. There's a lot of truth in us as kids, myself included, you go out to the playground, recess, after school, you get a ball, you're kind of on your own and you're teaching yourself things that aren't necessarily optimal for your sport. And this can even carry over to, you know, strategy when you start playing organized basketball, depending on who your coach is. And he tells you, you know, get into this habit or we're going to do this thing when you drive or you jump off of one foot. And it's a lot harder to relearn that stuff going on. So it's a weird meta thing where I think this applies to players and Festus Azili. But of course, I also am fascinated by how it applies to someone like you coming at it from from a fresh perspective where you and I are often in the same place now, but as I talk about in Thinking Basketball, the book, like it was a probably a decade long journey for me to get there. And I was an you know, I was that kid with the paper who was analytically inclined and thinking about things. But man, I, if, I have probably all time player lists from when I was like a teenager and they're littered with the best scores ever. Right. And, and it also makes sense, especially with what was available at the time that volume scoring and uh, was was more important and and it was you you could think about how how easy it was and also I mean you could tie that in with how sometimes players overrate other players who are really really good one-on-one you know like oh damn I can never stop them or they you know they that that person's always a challenge because that is the lens by which that they can that they view the game to an extent. Like, you know, in that in that context of this guy's good against me or is hard against me. And while it is a team sport, that is a very personal way to see things. And I remember there there were guys that you know when I played soccer that would get the better of me or teams or whatever it could be. And that uh, kind of getting outside of that lens. And for me also, one of the one of the other as an analyst, something that was very useful was having the local team 
you know, I, I, you know, I've covered the whole league basically since I started. I started as a national analyst. I didn't start as a local person. They didn't even know where I lived for the early part when I was with Real GM. <laughs> what honed a lot of it for me was getting to see the evolution of the Golden State Warriors from the Nelson and Smart teams, which I started to cover, to the Mark Jackson teams, to the Steve Kerr. And I mean, I was, you know, for it ended up being right, and there was no guarantee that it would be. I, I, I wrote a piece. I want to say it was in you know, like a couple of years before he got fired that basically said Mark Jackson is, is the thing that is holding back the Warriors right now. And I was getting, I got an avalanche of criticism, which is fine. You know, I, I welcome it. And basically my idea was that there was untapped potential that they weren't reaching because he wasn't intellectually curious enough. And I mm. did not expect things to go the way they did. Right. I mean, first of all, they weren't like, originally it didn't look like they were going to get Kerr. They would have gotten somebody who probably wouldn't have pushed the envelope as far as he did. But that is not to say, and I rec- had to reconcile this when I wrote my book, that like the Mark Jackson years were bad for the Warriors in any way, shape, or form. I think you, you look at it as an overall journey, and that instilling you know, from Jackson and, and Malone and Darren Ehrman and all these other coaches, and just the players innately, oh, you have to try on defense. You know, the defensive cohesiveness and effort and all that. The Warriors, that's the, the probably the most misstated part of their success by by the casual fan or by some of the people who fuel the opinions of the casual fan is that the Warriors were an offensively like that would the Warriors won because of their offense no they won because they were the offensive team that had the best defense right and I think that was a a nuance that maybe coming at it the way that I did was important and also seeing it every game was that if they had just been a really good offense that team wouldn't have been nearly as successful I I want to drill down a little bit more on that idea of intellectual curiosity because for me when we grew up you would always first of all you play a lot of three-on-three one-on-one two-on-two whatever and so the game isn't as interactive but then even when you would play in a you know full court full full team setting you would say something like if the game it was near the end of the game and it was a close game and you're in the huddle you'd say don't let it be your man don't let it be your man who hits the game-winning shot or gets by you or whatever and that is still so much about a discrete one-on-one pairing, the matchup, the guy across from you, the position, right? You're a point guard and you play this way and then you guard point guards and you do point guard things and you're a shooting guard and you do shooting guard things and you play this way and you guard shooting guards and on and on and on. And yet, how different would it be as a sport, maybe soccer has some of this, if you said, don't be the guy who misses the rotation, something like that. Yeah. Right? And, and I, th- I think that's a great point. And remembering that there are many different ways that an opponent can score a basket and a lot of them are not even if your man scores are not you screwing up right and 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 you can you can get there in a bunch of different ways but that that is a a good a good methodology for it and not missing a rotation not you know and and the importance of communication and and all that and 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 also like I, i think that the mentality there this is this will probably be more of an offshoot than a a main a main branch of this conversation is thinking about how it made so much intuitive sense that going to a like a basically switch everything system like the rockets have done at times it made intuitive sense to me because that's easy to communicate it's easy to convey it's easy to execute it might not have the the pure ceiling unless you have the great personnel because it's something that players could deal with you know it's there aren't reads and if there aren't reads it's a lot easier yeah and and but this goes but i think there's a main branch point here because you're the you in the intellectual curiosity you needed to get there was to play 
players who weren't necessarily, you're a center. You're a strict seven-foot center, and you have these skills, and you're a six-nine power forward, and you have these skills. You needed players who were more interchangeable to really make that a viable option, and yet there was so much sort of resistance to that idea. You can't, you can't play small ball. You can't play without these. I mean, I go back to Don Nelson, who when he was with Dallas, some point in the late 90s, and I've discussed this before, he had this idea where he's just like, we should probably shoot more threes, you know? We, they shot that season. Let's bring it up. Hold on. Let's, let me bring it up. They shot 25 three-pointers a game, which was five more than the next closest team, which at the time was like, wow, these guys are really just having a green light to run down the court and jack a lot of threes. But this is part of the so the sort of cognitive science term is the anchoring effect, right? We're anchored. It's that weight that you were alluding to earlier. You're you're anchored in these old ideas, and it's very very hard to get out of those ideas. And I think I think to me that's a that's a sort of core point tying back into things like valuing points per game or valuing scores. I mean, maybe did you have that with Monte Ellis at any point where it's like. You know, okay, I understand he's scoring a lot and he has great skills, but that doesn't mean we should inherently gift him all of the value until proven otherwise. I'll go a different way with Monte. That's certainly fair. But Monte was the was the evidence that I needed to prove that steals weren't a universal positive. Uh, that's a good because one. Because I I saw I saw how much he gambled and, and the consequences on the team's defense that certain guys, you know, I mean we we could go through various examples. Are, are, are steals guys that don't sabotage their defense. But that idea that because it's one of the few things that is quantifiable, that, oh, if you're getting a steal, I mean, and then you think about what a steal does. It take, it ends a possession for the other team, and it generally creates a transition because it's a, li- a steal has to be live ball. It creates a transition opportunity for you. That's fantastic. And, and those, when they are created, are very good things. But there is also the consequence of a failed attempt. And I think that is something, again, harder to quantify, more more granular, more just having to watch a lot, that can be really challenging. And another example of that for me was DeAndre Jordan, in that there was that stretch of time where he was going for way too many blocked shots. And so then that was conceding offensive rebounds to the other team or just being out of position. And so again, blocked shots, generally speaking, a very good thing. But pursuit of them can lead you down some negative pathways if you're doing it too much. It's along the idea that everything is good in moderation, everything is bad in excess. Yeah, and I think what you're getting at here is the measurement of the counterfactual. And it's like, look, it's not that hard or maybe not that hard of a sell to say, you know, what happens when you try to make a great pass and you miss and it goes out of bounds? Well, we can call that a turnover. Um, What happens when you go for a steal? Okay, maybe that's a missed steal. What happens when you chase a block? Maybe that's block chasing. Rebounding. Dennis Rodman sometimes would (laughs) forego his defensive responsibilities to hang around the basket. And so we have all these trade-offs that I don't think are too hard to sell. But still, even in 2020, and this is why I led with it in Thinking Basketball, the book, selling the trade-off of a scoring attempt. You know, like what, what actually happens when you give the ball to, it could be Ant Monte Ellis or whoever, and they run the possession, you, you, it's very, very difficult to measure and sell the idea that maybe other options on that possession could have been better. 
and some of it can also be a mentality issue too. It's that there there are teams sometimes where you think, uh, you know, there were there were I'm sure there were times, especially if you go back chronologically in the NBA, where how how good is a contested twenty footer or a lightly contested twenty footer, you know, versus an open three, a corner three, a dunk, all those sorts of things. And and so the the expectations that coaches have and players have are also exceedingly important here. And that was something, you know, going back to the when the Jackson Kerr thing, I think Clay's the one who brought this up, might have been Harrison Barnes, that the Warriors had, the players, had to recalibrate what was a good and bad shot because what they were generating was so different. Mm, yeah, great point. Last thing I want to pick your brain about before I let you get out of here. You came into the game, you, you were fortunate enough to miss the uh, 66-64 playoff slogfests of... 2003 and 2004 and you came into the game uh, still a little before the three-point shot has exploded the way it has in the last you know five six years or whatever do you have any stylistic preferences do you when you go back and watch old games do you say like oh this is phenomenal or do you say what is going on why is everyone standing in the lane and you know what's up with the uh the short selection and things like that you know do you do you have the same kind of uh, reaction that so many seem to have to extreme shifts in style with today's game most of the time and, and you know i've got even going back like nate and i did a rewatch of that the game six spurs heat when ray allen hit the shot even that feels old now it's pretty amazing like if people go back and see that but yeah there was a, a, a story that i like was god i think it was like 13 2013 or 2014 before pre-dunked on nate you, m- me and then a few other people um, who will remain nameless were were all watching. We were watching the dunk contest together, and then after the dunk contest, we were on NBA TV. I guess as we were, we weren't like watching closely, but we were doing something else. And you probably remember the game better than I can. A, a Knicks Bulls game from I think '93 came on, and you know I've been an analyst, you know, doing my thing for a few years, been following the sport for a little while. And everybody else there grew up with it, had a big connection with that game and everything else. And I was just struck by how terrible the basketball was. <laughs> how you know, how like dare the, you? <laughs> because it was, you know, the ball wasn't moving. The the offense was so station to station. The there was, a, you know, some of the defensive stuff like you could appreciate. You know, like I, I the, the how the rules changed. I mean, that was a, a really good encapsulation for me of how defense was played so differently between those two eras. It was very extreme with those teams in particular. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was a, you know, there's this weird thing about like that sometimes with sports, people don't think about that it is an entertainment product because, and then in many ways, that's what you're competing with for casual fans, not for hardcore ones, but for casual fans, it's, is it better than going to a movie or doing something else? And I just found it incredibly hard to watch. And I mean, it was, MJ was still great. There were a lot of other things going on, but like as a, as an entertainment product, I was I was just struck by that. But I did enjoy what I what I found interesting was going back, like when I wrote my book, and watching going far deeper in the past. You could find these pockets that were absolutely fascinating, or you could find different things. And you're know, watching, you know, like watching a bunch of Wilt clips, or watching Rick Barry. Watching, I became obsessed with the seventy five seventy six Warriors, the team after the one that won the championship. They were better. They were better that year. They were better. Yeah. They were it, it, so. I did this thing in my I did this thing in my book. Um, it was uh, just as pure juxtaposition. 
I talked about the 75-76 Warriors immediately. I think it was immediately before I talked about the 15-16 Warriors because there are these remarkable parallels between those two teams, Mm. which are very uncommon in NBA history. You would know better than I. But it's team wins a championship, subsequent team is superior and doesn't win a championship and is seen as massive disappointment because they didn't win a championship. That's a uh, hundred a hundred things to do. What's the title? Remind people where they can get that. A hundred things Warriors fans should know and do before they die. There you go. And and this will be fun for you. Writing a history book as somebody who didn't know the history very well beforehand was actually pretty fun, because I like I wrote it. So I I, I kind of in my brain had this challenge of. How do I write about this when so many people who are reading this will know, have known it better than I did before I started re- re- researching the book? Hmm. And I actually loved that challenge. And then it became sort of paralleling. I don't know if people have listened to Slow Burn. Um, the first season of Slow Burn, the way I it, it thought of the thesis of it was explaining something with the things that I didn't like. like so it was Watergate and that of like, the person going back through Watergate and being like, oh, I wish I had known this and that and that. And so that was ended up being something I emphasized in the book was like I became fixated with the 75, 76 Warriors because in the Bay Area, they weren't that like pivotal figure because they didn't win a championship and everything else, whereas the 74, 75 team, of course, was and the Ice Capades and everything else and and Barry and the like, there's so many pieces to that story. Um, and. So, yeah, it became about those sorts of things. And then also, you know, the the fun of being able to order chapters you like. And so the players that I liked growing up and all that, they got they got a little bit more. But it was it was so much fun. And the diff, one of the big differences between two of us was like writing a hundred self-contained chapters was both a really good thing and a really challenging thing because it was nice because I didn't have to weave a narrative, but you kind of felt like you wanted to at some point. So you was like, well, you you put it in in certain parts. Yeah. So you you have been able to look back a little bit. It sounds like. Do mm-hmm. you have? Um, so so for me and, and listeners probably know this because I talk about it all the time. I, I am a fan of all different kinds of basketball. Uh, when I was younger, I used to watch all the women's games. When the women's leagues came about in the '90s, I would watch them. I would watch whatever I could get my hands on, basically. Um, European basketball. I know you've watched some European basketball, maybe oh, yeah. more more than me in recent years, um, definitely. And so when I look back historically, that's kind of how I think about it. There are eras that I prefer style-wise more than others, but I am in general like the 80s. There's something great about the 80s. Some of the 70s teams and style and games are great. Uh, we, I grew up in the 90s, so there's an inherent nostalgia there. I think you were probably watching Game 5 of the Knicks and the Bulls because that's the, that's the really famous one from that series, the Charles Smith game where Scottie Pippen blocks him repeatedly Horace Grant is in there at the end of the game Charles you know Marv Albert with the famous call even just the production of those games has nostalgia with the NBA on NBC and things like that but some errors are slightly more enjoyable than others for you looking back do you have you know periods where you say like okay I I I dig this I want to watch more of it or is it really the kind of thing and I think this ties into what we're seeing with the global explosion of the sport is it really the kind of thing where you do look and say, no, no, today's game is just aesthetically more enjoyable for me, and this is the style I like? Today's game is more aesthetically enjoyable, and I think a lot of that relates to the skill, you know, like the idea of, of what, what is asked of the average player now 
so much more ball handling, falling on different guys, passing, all that type of stuff. You know, there isn't as much of the you're you're never going to have to dribble unless you play a position other than the one or the two for the Rockets. You know, like other than those circumstances, you're going to have different responsibilities. But there are different pockets that I, I really enjoyed. And for me, it wasn't as much era as much as it was like specific players and teams. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, some of that was that some of the teams that I did watch growing up a little bit were like some of the Don Nelson ones. I, I've been overall, whatever league or entity it is, I've watched some women's as well and college pro, all, all sorts of things is I like ball and player movement, generally speaking. And so when those things are more open, I'm more on board. So there were some there were some fun teams, you know, the seven seconds or less Suns are certainly are certainly a team that I really enjoyed watching. And then some of the international stuff, you could see that. I mean, there were some intensely fun international teams during the time that I've watched basketball. And really that's true going back as well. But when it was, you know, like a post up and, and, and then you're just, it's the mono a mono or just isolation basketball, isolation basketball doesn't interest me that much. And I appreciate the difficulty of it. And I, you know, I, I, Kobe's a great example. MJ of course had, had, had some amazing stuff there too, though. I think, both of them did many other things that weren't appreciation. But for me, in terms of like as as an entertainment product, yeah, ball and player movement is really the touchdown for it. I love passing and that probably ties in with soccer too. Like it those those look more to me like something that I, I just I could just flip on and just as competing with other sports is gonna be more fun. Well, I think there's been a revolution in all these sports, even American football, where you use the whole field pitch court. You space it out as much as yep. you can. The spacing allows for more angles for player and ball movement, which is a synergistic thing anyway. You want to cut into the space or use the space. And so now you see the sort of soccer, of course, Pelé, famously called soccer, the beautiful game. But we've got beautiful game basketball with the Spurs and the Warriors and some of these other teams. And I think we are in the midst of a passing revolution because of this because you have better angles for passing player movement is seemingly on an all-time high right now at least in the half court with the sets that teams run and this has all allowed players to attack into that space with the ball enhancing their ball handling skills the shooting skills are seemingly at an all-time high as well whereas the extreme opposite seems to be some period in maybe the 80s or 90s, or certainly they did it before in the 60s and 70s, where you would go to the space to attack, right? You would drive yourself, if you were a post player, you'd say like, okay, it's really high percentage to get near the basket to score. So I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get myself as close to the basket as I can to score, and then have someone pass me the ball and I'll shoot it. And now the huge shift seems to be to open up space and vacate those areas so people can drive into it. And I think it's, uh, it's an, I don't know if you buy that theory, but it's certainly an enhancement to me of skill and space and um, all the aesthetic principles we're discussing. I largely do. And I mean, we saw some of that with the Warriors last couple of years and Dallas, I think is another intriguing example of how that can work. And, and also, I mean, when they had Dwight Powell, which sadly they don't right now, the idea of role man gravity is something that I think is also really interesting, but having guys who can kind of do a couple different things is, is, is fascinating. And I, lo I love where the league is going. And also, like, I'm not saying, you know, like, every team that does those things is good and every team that doesn't is bad. And and something else that I, I have an appreciation for is when a team from top to bottom embraces 
a different approach because personnel and circumstances dictate. Like, I love that sort of thing as well. Like, the tactical elements of, okay, well, we can't do that as well as you can, but we can take this thing away from you. And, I mean, Kawhi, Kawhi last year, is, is, like, his ability to just get to a spot is truly impressive. Yeah, to me, that's what makes basketball the beautiful game is how many different ways you can skin that cat. The poor cat. Why is the cat always the one getting skinned? I think other cultures have different animals for that expression. Yeah, we, we we should we should as a as a society we should come up with a better a better like term for finding their for finding different solutions to problems. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I will leave that for listeners to sort out. Danny, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. You can follow Danny on Twitter at Danny Larue L E R O U X. And if you want more, we're going to do a quick post show available to patreon subscribers uh that is actually the best way to support this podcast sign up over at patreon.com slash thinking basketball where you can not only get the post show for this but other post shows that we sometimes do on podcasts additional features occasional private videos and uh, you get all kinds of extra content that doesn't quite make it into podcasts or videos we also have a discord community where this weekend uh sunday february 23rd we will be doing another live q a in the community we do those every month or so they talk about a lot of historical things historical seasons so check that out if you're interested it's patreon.com slash thinking basketball otherwise hope you are enjoying the game starting back up looking forward to closing out the 2020 regular season in the next month or so and as always i hope that you are all having a great day